Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Welcome to this Americans in Action slash U.S. Soccer Listener Questions episode. Joining me today, uh, the GM of the Total Soccer Show, which means I'm not entirely sure what he does. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Taylor, that's well done on your part. I was waiting to see what my what my role was going to be uh-huh. for this episode. You know, yeah. it, it's a good role. It's a good job. You sit back in a cushy chair in Chicago yep. or now maybe Atlanta or North Carolina. It seems like U.S. Soccer is going to work on building something on the East Coast headquarter-wise now that they don't live in Soccer House anymore. But I sit around in a chair. Occasionally, yep. I like Skype Weston McKenney and talk about Harry Potter. <laughs> I might Skype uh, Allegri and get yelled at in Italian for a while. Or now Chris Armas, for some reason, at Leeds United. Oh, I don't boy. do a lot. I don't do a lot. But I make several thousand dollars. Several hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Excuse me. I wish it was several thousand. That'd be even better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you get free tickets to games and yeah. you have to talk to Giorana's mom. That's the downside, I guess, if you're right. if you're the GM of U.S. soccer. We right. have questions about the GMs, about future U.S. head coaches, uh, roster choices when it comes to the U.S. women's national team. Plenty of questions to get to. So, Joe, let's get into it with the first one from Shreyas Romani. The biggest news from the CONCACAF Comma Bowl announcement last week was the 2024 Copa America will be in the United States, but they also announced a combined 2024 Women's Gold Cup. Uh, we've been wanting the women to get more competitive games against quality opponents. Will this help Joe? I think it will help, but I do not think it gets you all the way there. If we think about Agreed. this as a spectrum, right, the U.S. right now is on maybe the left side of that spectrum where all the quality games are over on the right side. They're, they're maybe not fully on the left, but they're, they're pretty far in that direction. They don't get to play European teams. They don't play the best of the best from South America. Most often, they end up playing teams from CONCACAF in their regional tournaments. That's how this game goes. This inches them a little bit closer to that getting quality games and playing quality teams more often side of the spectrum. But, Taylor, I think only just. I, I think yep. this expanded Women's Gold Cup is a good idea. I think it's fun. I think it's going to make the tournament more interesting. The CONCACAF W Championship last summer was interesting because it was qualifying. It qualified the U.S. for the World Cup and for the Olympics. So there was that angle. But the the quality of the opponents and, and just the intrigue around some of those games wasn't there. And so I do like this new idea. I'm excited for this tournament in 2024. But I'm not sure there's a team in South America. In fact, I don't think there's a team in South America that can really give the U.S. a run for their money. Brazil is the highest FIFA-ranked CONMEBOL team. And they're ninth. That's uh, lower than Canada. They're, they're higher in the FIFA rankings than any CONCACAF team except for the U.S. and Canada. So they're, they're maybe just underneath those two. But it's like U.S. dot, 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 dot Canada and maybe a, a few more dots in Brazil. Or maybe it's a little bit closer there. I know Canada just won the Olympics. But we saw last summer that the quality is not the same as the U.S. when they're firing on all cylinders. So you know, there's, there's something there for the U.S. and Brazil. But, Taylor, I mean, you get behind Brazil and CONMEBOL. And, and you're looking at teams that have quality, yeah. teams that have exciting young talents, but Argentina and, and Chile and maybe Colombia, and it's, they're, they're just not very good teams. Those teams are like on par with Mexico in the FIFA rankings, and Mexico yeah. is, is not really a consistent threat to the U.S. just yet. So, like I said, I think this gets the U.S. a little bit closer, and it probably gets them a game against Brazil, or it could, and that's useful and fun. And again, there's more intrigue around this tournament, which is good for growing the game and hopefully making other teams more competitive and elevating the floor for women's soccer in the Americas. All of those are good things. I'm just not sure that this really gets the U.S. all the way there to their goal of playing good teams all the time. 
Yeah, I think you covered a lot of the ground there, especially that last point. I think there is an idea that it helps sort of raise the bar uh, for both confederations and then long term that gives yeah. you more uh, opposition down the road. For now, yeah, I think it's it's as you said, it's USA, then it's Canada, then it's Brazil, and then there's an even bigger drop to what Colombia is twenty seventh, Argentina twenty ninth, Mexico thirty five, Costa Rica yeah. thirty seven, Chile thirty eight. So you're not getting the top tier opposition. You're getting some stronger opponents, and in that way, it sort of feels like the inverse of the men's side, where you have Concacaf teams going to participate in the Copa America. And so you wouldn't expect the U.S. or Mexico to win those competitions. You wouldn't expect them to run Brazil particularly close. But it does give just a few more teams that are of a higher caliber, not the highest caliber, but but I think in that way, uh, common ball teams coming to play in the uh, 2024 W Gold Cup will just raise the level of overall competition. I doubt it means that the United States is truly under fire. It's not really giving them like true World Cup prep for those later knockout rounds when you're playing European powers, but it gives yeah. you stronger opposition, broadly speaking. And then I think down the road, it helps kind of raise the game overall. So I don't think it helps massively, but it certainly doesn't hurt. I'll, I'll put it that way. Agreed on all fronts on that, Taylor. I think For me, as I thought about this question, and generally as we've talked about the U.S. needing to play better teams, and credit to U.S. soccer because they did schedule some really good games at the end of 2022. They played Germany twice, they played Spain, they played England. That's that's the kind of stuff that I've been wanting to see for a while now. And it, it, it seems like that was pretty much mission accomplished at the end of 2022. It was a little bit of a reality check for the U.S. where they lost three games in a row for the first time in almost three decades. That just hadn't happened. They hadn't been tested properly really since the Olympics and since the failure at the Olympics. So that was good. Taylor, kind of what I, I would love to see from the U.S., and I'm curious to hear from you if, if you think this could ever happen, is to see the U.S. and the Euros. I know there's some conflict there potentially on the scheduling side with you know the, the Gold Cup because those are both summer tournaments, I believe, taking place in the same year. Maybe there's a way you can embed yourself there. Maybe there's a way you can get into to other qualifying tournaments. Do you think the U.S. could ever embed themselves in a situation like that? I wonder if FIFA would let that happen just because then it sort of takes away even more so from the World Cup because the World Cup is the idea that you could have mm. those those regional competitions, but then the World Cup is when you finally get everybody together. The Olympics for the women's game is is another example of that. And I think that FIFA probably doesn't love that the women, uh, like women's soccer at the Olympics play such a big role. Mm. So may, maybe if that means that they're overseeing the Euros themselves and they get more involvement in there, maybe then they're okay with it. But I think for the most part, I think we're going to see the U.S. sort of relegated to unofficial friendly tournaments and that sort of thing uh, because Europe, I, I also think it probably wouldn't be too popular to kick a potential team out to have the United States in there, even if it raises the level of competition. It also yeah. means that there's a chance the U.S. wins the European championship, <laughs> and I don't know if UEFA would love that either. I mean, that sounds pretty great, I think, <laughs> on a lot of different levels. No, it would be interesting, right? They probably have to yeah. add a number of different guest teams to keep the, the numbers even yeah. or... Or allow other teams from UEFA to qualify to keep the numbers even. I mean, there are logistical challenges there. That that still, though, I think is the holy grail. The holy grail, excuse me, for Quail. the U.S. Yeah. right now is is getting to the point where you're playing these teams in a real competition on a on a somewhat regular basis. Not you know multiple times a year in a competition like the Euros. It doesn't happen multiple times a year, but you know you're in those things in real moments on a on a somewhat frequent. Uh, basis. So I don't know if that could ever happen. I, I don't think it will in the near future, but it is still something that I am curious about. And given, Taylor, we have another question about this later. We've mm-hmm. seen guest teams in competitions and in international competitions before. You know, We're seeing this now in the women's game. We've seen it maybe more on the men's side in the past. You know, maybe the door isn't closed on something like this. All right. Well, we will see. Shreyas, hopefully we have answered your question to the best of our ability, or we have. Just hopefully it's to your standards. <laughs> uh, next question from Scruffy Jack. If not the USMNT head coaching job, where might Jesse Marsh end up? Uh, Joe, my like TLDR, TLDL answer for this one is, I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> I, I do have some thoughts. And I think my starting thoughts were to look at what has gone wrong for Jesse Marsh in his last hmm. couple gigs. Uh, because Salzburg, I think the way, rightly or wrongly, uh, I think Leipzig? maybe Sorry. through the... Uh, no, I'm starting with Salzburg. I oh, think right. like, with enough. the 
with the sort of lens we have now, I feel like the way his Salisbury teams have been covered is basically same tactics we've come to expect, but had superior talent to make up the difference. Whether or not that's fair, I think that's the brush he's being painted with when you then look at what happened at Leipzig and what happened at Leeds. It's playing a very similar style, having a similar philosophy in the way he wants to press, in the way he wants to use that kind of the counter press to win the ball, to be the the, the number 10 uh, in that way. And, and then when you either have like a larger percentage of the ball as they did against Nottingham Forest this week. And I think they had 70% possession. That's when things don't break down. That's when I think the criticism became, he's not a very good attacking manager. He doesn't adjust his tactics to suit the opponent or to nullify what the opponent is trying to do. So with that said, Joe, I welcome you to agree or disagree with any of that, but I would say I would like him to look at positions that allow him to evolve and not just sort of, stick with that Red Bull philosophy, not just kind of have that one style or that one sort of modified style, but maybe reinvent himself a little bit, try some new things uh, with a club that allows him that opportunity to still be competitive, but sort of just evolve to that next level to change up the way he's doing things because it doesn't seem like it's working so well when he gets those more top-tier gigs. So that's my introduction to this one. Joe, I turn it to you for your thoughts on that. I like your synopsis of the different jobs there. I think a lot of that is is fair, and I think that's that was my perception watching Salzburg and, and Leipzig. Just basically players not not wanting to do what he wanted them to do, and realizing that ah, this this probably isn't going to work for any of yeah. us. And then leads a lot of the attacking struggles and and being down right, losing losing games and and being in a position where you need to climb back and get a goal or two goals in the last. 60, 45, 30 minutes of a game and chasing the game and sort of just running into a brick wall over and over again and taking low percentage shots and, and getting low quality opportunities. I think that was a big frustration for Leeds and that was a big problem for Leeds was their issues at the back with that high risk, high reward style, creating two open games initially that hurt them and then creating a lot of uh, stagnant possession play or or just you know running literally straight head on into a, into a, a brick wall. So I think that's all fair. My the, the one thing I said, Taylor, the one thing you said there, Taylor, that I have a hard time getting on board with is Jesse Marsh reinventing himself. I don't really see that happening. I yeah. think Jesse Marsh has a very clear way of seeing the game, of thinking about the game, of, of a way of believing that this is how the sport should be played. I think he can be tactically flexible in terms of shapes and in terms of you know micro adjustments and in individual moments. Maybe there wasn't enough of that at Leeds. But realistically, he sees his game this way. He sees this game his way. And I don't really think that's going to change. So I don't really know where that leaves Jesse Marsh. We, we know that the Red Bull style can be successful in certain areas. He was successful in the U.S. with the New York Red Bulls, won the Supporter Shield, had some very good teams there with real talent on them. Maybe not like the, the top of MLS in terms of talent, but they had talented players. He did some really impressive things at Salzburg. We just haven't really seen it work at the top levels of the game for him. It has worked for other members of the Red Bull coaching tree, but it just hasn't really been there for Jesse Marsh yet. So, Taylor, your your TLDL is is exactly where I'm left with this whole situation. <laughs> I don't really know what happens with Jesse Marsh. It, I, I feel more and more likely that he's going to get the U.S. job. That's not anything I know. It just feels like that is... It feels like yesterday was the perfect day for U.S. soccer. Like, I don't, I don't know why. It feels like that was really a help for them. Uh, so I, I have mixed feelings about yeah. the style and whether it'll work at a big club. It didn't work at Leipzig. That's the biggest place he's been so far. Top players don't want to play his way. And so that, that does sort of put a cap on the available jobs that Marsh could get. And also his, his record coaching in the highest levels of the game is not very good. So That's the problem. Yeah. It's tough, man. It really is tough. It is, uh, because I think if you look at, he takes over a team that aspires to be one of the biggest teams in Germany. They want to be in the Champions League places at least. Obviously, they want to be challenging for the title, Leipzig, and it does not go well. Uh, like I, I forget the specifics, but I remember the story being that he even offers to walk away before he is eventually sacked, recognizing that it's not the right situation, it's not the right time. And I think we gave him a lot of credit for, for sort of voicing that concern and being open to the idea that it was just it was too much of a transition from Nagelsmann. It was too different of a situation. The players weren't responding to him. It just felt wrong. And, and so that's where I had hoped that Leeds would be the sort of the rebound and, and it would show that the Leipzig one was the exception as yeah. opposed to the rule. 
And it does seem like his players responded. It doesn't seem like there was as much sort of player backlash to his style. It just seems like there wasn't that next step in his, if not coaching evolution. And I hear what you mean. I'm not saying like throw uh, the baby out with the bathwater, throw all the toys out the pram and then start over. I think it's more you have to refine. It's what Jurgen Klopp is, I think, trying to do now with Liverpool. It's refining that heavy metal gegenpress to also have a little bit more possession and allow you to create more clear-cut opportunities rather than win the ball back counter and hope you catch them out. Again, that is an over oversimplification of things. Uh, but I think... I, I err on the side of if he were to get a gig that allowed him to sort of play fundamentally the same style, but maybe with a 10% difference, a 10% adjustments. Mm. I look at somewhere like Switzerland, where if you can take over one of the bigger, historically bigger clubs in Switzerland, I think there's going to be less pressure, but enough pressure similar to Austria and Salzburg that like you have expectations of winning. uh, But I also think it's not taking over Leeds or Leipzig or a, a bigger Bundesliga club or even like a bigger Dutch club in that way. Like I, I wondered if Ange Postacoglu did get mm. uh, like the Leeds gig, for example, and the Celtic gig opens up. Like, would that be a good spot for Jesse Marsh to go in and and sort of like be all about the physicality and intensity and try hard? And and that is another one where it seemed like maybe that could be good. I, I think I just keep going back to your point about him being the next U.S. coach. I don't know if he's going to get some of those gigs because of the way it ends with Leipzig, because of the way it ends with Leeds. It, it's not the best coaching pedigree. He has success with Salzburg. He has success with New York. I don't know how many clubs right now are as interested in that. Whereas I think moving to the United States is, is if, if not a lateral move, it's still an esteemed position. It's a national team coaching gig. It's, it's coaching the U S with, with the expectations they have and the talent they have. And I think in some way that is, if not face saving, it, it's a it doesn't hurt his reputation quite yeah. as much as I don't know going back to MLS and, and coaching Columbus or something like sure. that. I, I think moving to MLS is. I don't mean this as a criticism. I think it would just be sort of like a white flag. Like, ah, you know yeah, what? I couldn't cut it in Europe. Back. I'm going back to MLS, and I'm going to try and see what happens. I just think he's not ready for that yet. Whereas the U.S. seems like a safer like sort of intermediate spot, theoretically safer. I still have big concerns about him as U.S. coach. I don't think it's nearly the slam dunk that some people think it is or some people have thought it is. But I I do think a national team gig seems more aligned to where he is at present. Yeah, it's it's difficult to answer this question properly without really knowing all the behind the scenes info for most clubs in Europe's top four leagues. Probably maybe maybe we can rope Liga in there too. But I, I think... I think Jesse Marsh is not going to go to MLS. I, I would be surprised, really, if he went anywhere outside of the top four or the U.S. job at this mm-hmm. point. I would be surprised if that happened. The other thing I could see happening is he just takes some time off. And, and maybe that's time off leading him into the USMNT job after the sporting director or whatever that, that leadership structure is going to look like in U.S. soccer is put in place. Or, or maybe it's time off until the summer where the European club season is, is over and there are more openings and club are, clubs are looking to... You know, shed an interim manager and, and hire somebody on a permanent basis, and Marsh can have the full preseason, and that's something that's important to him. I don't know the answers to those questions. I thought Hoffenheim might be a good one here, a little mm-hmm. bit of a bigger club, Taylor, than maybe some of the ones that you mentioned. Although Celtic, Celtic's at a different level in a lot of ways. They just fired their manager yesterday, fourteenth on the table on nineteen points through nineteen games, three points out of the relegation zone. So in a lot of ways, it sounds like Leeds, but. Uh, it, it sounds like Matarazzo's getting that job. So it feels like that's one person off the board for the USMNT, most likely, and uh, one job off the board for Marsh. So I don't, I don't know what that's going to look like. Taylor, I was looking at open jobs or, or maybe managers that could be in trouble on transfer market, and it is crazy to me how little job security there is as a manager in Uh-oh. soccer. This is kind of an aside, but of the 18 Bundesliga teams, Taylor, do you want to guess how many managers have been at their posts for more than two years? How many of 18 managers have been there for more than two years? Uh, six? Three. Three <laughs> managers. So it's Mainz. It's Mainz with Bo Svensson. Phenomenal uh, name, by the way. He's yeah. been there for two years. Union Berlin with Urs Fischer, who's been there for four years. And Freiburg with Christian Streich, who's been there for 11 years. So apparently Freiburg is the place to be in the Bundesliga. But I mean, the same is true. Has Nagelsmann, three for Liga. 
Is this not, only not his second season? This is his second season, which wow. blew my mind as well. So, I mean, it, this is a tough job, right? And one point wow. that I wanted to make earlier, Taylor, you're talking about Marsh didn't succeed at Leipzig. <laughs> Leipzig haven't had a lot of success <laughs> no. post-Jesse Marsh. Like, the, it, it is, this is a difficult job. Not to make excuses for Jesse Marsh, who I, I do think, you know, largely failed and struggled at Leeds, even though I think the decision and the timing of that move was a little bit silly from Leeds United. I talked about Agreed. that yesterday. This is a tough job. There is no obvious club for him out there right now, in my view. The U.S. is still where I put my money, even though I don't love that. And maybe we can talk about why we don't love that another yeah. time, because I'm curious to hear your thoughts. But it's a tricky one, Taylor. This is a tricky one. All right. I have long, as you know, champion Pellegrino Matarazzo as a USMNT manager. Can I ask why? But- can I ask why about that, Taylor? Sure. I, I will just conclude. I like the idea of him taking that gig. That keeps the Hoffenheim job open for Jesse Marsh <laughs> to take over. Maybe Jesse Marsh needs a breather. Um, it. It, it is largely because, first of all, I will not say I watched a ton of Stuttgart. The Stuttgart I did watch, I liked that his team was basically very well organized, as cliche mm. as that is going to sound, in that it seemed like players understood their assignments. They knew when to be ultra defensive. They knew when to then try, try to kind of go at opponents when it felt like there were opportunities. Opportunities there, But the larger thing is that it was never a Stuttgart team that had a ton of talent. They never had huge names. Like I think Sasha Kalajic was was their sort of like their big one that they ended up selling uh, at a time when they were relegation battling. I'm not sure that helped Matarazzo too much, uh, but but they're not a club that is going to spend huge amounts of money. And so to my mind, he's a coach that is able to get the best out of the squad, out of the mm-hmm. players that are available to him. And that seems to be a thing that uh, like I've I've heard many many people like talk about when it comes to Burhalter is rather than have another system coach have another coach who wants to play a specific style with a specific philosophy have a coach who can come in evaluate the t- the the pool and then put together a team that functions the best uh, and I think with Stuttgart you're looking at a team that isn't going to have the biggest resources, the best players in the world but he still found a way to keep them up and make them competitive in the Bundesliga at least for a while and I think that's sort of the United States in a nutshell. It's not the, the, the greatest talent pool, the deepest talent pool. There is some talent there, but it is still a team that you have to kind of make function as a unit to be better than their collective parts mm. to sort of kick them to that next level. So I, it, it felt appealing to me in that way. There is the American connection as well, but I think it's just that he had a Stuttgart team sort of punching above their weight. That felt like a good parallel for the United States trying to punch above their weight in a World Cup. Interesting. Okay, I hear a lot of that. I don't know that I'm fully on board, and at this point it probably doesn't matter one way or the other, but I was curious because I know you mentioned that before, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how you said that as I prepped for the show. So there's the moderato reasoning that maybe nobody wanted to hear, but I certainly wanted to hear it. uh, The other thing, like, strangely that that informs this is, I think it was Ian McIntosh and somebody else, I can't remember, were doing this series of pieces for The Athletic about, about basically taking over bad Bundesliga clubs and in in football manager and trying to find ways to get them to be like competitive teams in their football manager sims i promise this connects uh but i think ian mcintosh had uh stuttgart and just complained over and over about how bad they were how little talent they had how it was impossible we tried to back three we tried to back four we tried to front three we tried to front two nothing's working we can't make it work and this was at a time when like i think his team was routinely getting relegated or in the relegation zone and Matarazzo had them like closer to mid table for a sure. while and so for me it was I don't, that probably shouldn't matter but it does that like even in the Sims, there were there were people who were so good at football manager saying like this Stuttgart team is not good, and yet Pellegrino <laughs> Matarazzo found a way to make them competitive. I don't know if that should carry as much weight as it does, but for some I reason it. it does. So there you go. I love it, Taylor. That's great. All right. Um, on that rambling note, uh, let's take a quick break. Then let's get back to answering some more listener questions. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back to a U.S.-centric listener questions episode. It's me and Joe answering those questions as best we can. Up next comes a question from pre-season, pre-SZN. How big of a blow is it losing Sam Mewis turning to the U.S. women's national team? Uh, is Julie Ertz going to be able to rise like a phoenix, or is her window closed? Is she even training with anyone right now? Can Vlatko figure out how to fit everyone into the right spots? That last one is a bigger question. Let's yeah. start with the Sam Mewis, uh, Julie Ertz parts of that one, Joe. Sure. So Mewis is a big blow, losing her. I don't think it's a knockout blow. So I, it's somewhere in the middle here. The U.S. have midfield depth at the eight and the ten spots. Sort of most often Blacko's gone with a single number six, although we saw him tweak that a bit last month. And we might see that again over the next couple of weeks at She Believes. So that might look a little bit different. But, you know, thinking about a six and then two kind of free eights, so they're eights and tens. The U.S. has depth there with Rose Lavelle, with Lindsey Horan, with Ashley Sanchez. I'd kind of be surprised. I mean, there are others as well. But I'd kind of be surprised if any other player got minutes at that spot, like real minutes at the World Cup. I think those are the first few players. Maybe Taylor Korniak getting minutes there, uh, set-piece threat in addition to be able, in addition to being able to, to conduct the midfield in some ways. But there, there's depth there. Still, you want to have more talent at your disposal when you can, right? We saw what happened to the U.S. men at the last World Cup, and these are yeah. completely different ballgames because the women are miles better. But we saw what happened to the men when they don't have you know, a lot of depth in central midfield. They looked gassed by that last game against the Netherlands. So I do think it's a miss. It would have been nice to have her. Maybe an upgrade on Lindsey Horan, who I don't think has been very good for the U.S. in recent games. But it, it's not like a killer move. Taylor, do you, do you feel differently about Mewis, or, or where do you fall on that one? Uh, yes, I would definitely agree with everything that you said there, Joe. Uh, I would especially miss Sam Ewis's drunken dancing. Uh, she's got some <laughs> skills when it comes to the drunk dancing and the confidence that comes with drunk dancing. But that aside, I will also miss her presence on the pitch. I do think the U.S. has the the midfield depth. Maybe not as much as I would like, uh, but I think sometimes it, like there can be a benefit to scarcity in that if you lose somebody like Sam Ewis, I think it maybe simplifies things for Vlatko just a little bit. We've had those questions in the, in the past of if you don't have Julie Ertz, but you have Mewis, you have Horan, you have Sanchez, you have Lavelle, do you put Katarina Macario in there? I think that one's a little more settled, but there's there's been questions about like how do you fit all these personnel in? And to some extent, I do wonder if like not having some of those options just simplifies things. Things lock into place that much more. And then I think also people maybe know their roles. I, I think Korniak is going to want to start, but I don't think she's ever going to expect to start over Lindsay Horan or Rose Lavelle. Uh, but maybe I'm speaking of ignorance there, but I feel like there is just a, a delineation in some of that. Whereas with Sam Mewis, maybe things get a bit murkier. I would still much rather have her eligible, but maybe that's the silver lining here. Uh, and I am sad to not have Sam Mewis at the World Cup. Uh, I will also be sad not to have Julie Ertz. There's some speculation that she could come back. Uh, there was an article from late January uh, where Vlatko talked about how she could return to training. We we want to give her some more time, a little more space, and see what she wants to do. Um, 
He said, with Julie, we had a conversation, and obviously she needs a little bit more time to prepare before she even starts training with the team. We're just excited to give her a little more space and time until she's fully ready to join. But it still seems like it's an if as opposed to a when for Julie Ertz. She hasn't played, I think, in 18 months at this point since the Olympics. She's had a kid uh, and and maybe is is just sort of focused on that. Uh, so it doesn't seem right now. I wouldn't say that Julie Ertz is definitely going to be back. I think it's still the possibility. Uh, and I think does sort of if she comes back, I think everything I we know about Julie Ertz is that she's going to work really hard yeah. to be in the best possible shape, to be in the best possible role when it comes to to the U.S. So if she announces she's coming back, I would expect her to start because I think she just has that ability and has that work ethic. But if we don't hear things as time continues to tick, my assumption is we won't see Julie Ertz at the World Cup. I love the Phoenix shout in the question. Um, good work. Good work on that. I know it's the bird, not the city. But, you know, there's there's ties there. I do appreciate that. I, I think Julie Ertz is not going to be at this World Cup. I don't expect her to be there, Taylor. It feels like a massive if, and it, we just really haven't seen any signs that she's planning on coming back to the game, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? I think the U.S. has already started to prepare and, and been experiencing life after Julie Ertz. Andy Sullivan's gotten a lot of reps at the six, which I haven't loved, frankly, but she's she's there. Taylor Korniak is good at a lot of stuff in that number six role, can break lines with her passing. I want to see more of her there. Sam Coffey doesn't really seem to be in the mix, but Blacko has tried her out a little bit. Uh, he, he did that some at the end of last year. So the other options have started to been, have started to to really be prepared there. Ertz is a big loss. She, in my mind, is a much bigger loss than Sam Mewis. The U.S. doesn't have as much depth or quality at the sixth spot. Then they do up uh, up a little bit higher in midfield than the number eight positions, but still, you got to do what you got to do, and, and Julie Ertz is clearly involved in other things right now, maybe, maybe even things that are, are far more fulfilling than playing with the national team, and I think the U.S. is just sort of going to have to live with that. Now I'm like, all right, so Zach Ertz tore his ACL, so he's out. Like, is he rehabbed enough that he can be on, like, child duty and then Julie Ertz can go focus? Like, I, that, that's where I am with this one at this point. All right, so if we don't think Julie Ertz is going to be there, let's operate under the assumption that she won't be for now. Yeah. Joe, the final part of that question, uh, I feel like it's a loaded one for you. Can Vlatko figure out how to fit everyone into the right spots? <laughs> Taylor knows that I, I don't think Vlatko's done a very good job, and I think listeners probably know that right now. I, I honestly think Vlatko has done mostly fine at putting people into the right spots. Like, I, I, I don't think it's all that difficult to pick the U.S. as 11, or at least to get something close to functional on the field. There are difficult choices. I think the six is still a tough choice. Maybe the, the center backs outside of Naomi Gurma, so, so whoever's partnering Gurma, could be a little bit of a tough choice. And then the number nine spot maybe is a little difficult. I mean, there are, there are decisions to be made, but I think you can generally get folks into positions where they can succeed my issue with Vlatko has just been I don't feel like the U.S. is ever more than the sum of their parts. Like, he gets the mm-hmm. right players on the field, or he gets players that can succeed out on the field, but it doesn't seem like the attacking game plan is particularly effective. They've struggled in, in moments defensively, but mostly it's the attacking wastefulness and all the crosses and, and just the real lack of thoughtfulness in the final third that bugs me. So, yeah, I think he can get a good lineup on the field, and I, I think the U.S. can absolutely still win the World Cup. I just have my own, like, sort of separate tactical frustrations with Vlatko. Is there anything that would make you feel better? Like if there was if there were different looks in the attack, if we started mm. scoring different styles of goal, if there was just individual performers yeah. that raised their game, like what would it be, Joe? Is there anything that would make you think like, okay, I'm seeing some differences here? Yeah, so I love that question, Taylor, and that's a good one to have in mind for for really all of us as we head into She Believes because mm-hmm. the US doesn't have that many more games left until the World Cup. I think they they're don't. They have like two, maybe three after she believes from what's been said so far. So this is this is a big deal. I want to see the U.S. like have more of a plan in the final third. And what I mean by that is you have the talent advantage at almost all times against the opposing defense. Even against the best teams in the world, these attackers are the real deal, right? Alex Morgan, Katarina Macario, she's back and healthy. Sophia Smith, Mallory Swanson, Trinity Rodman. There's so much talent there. I want to see the U.S. combine more and, and look to play, like actually play soccer, like go out there and, and play the game instead of getting the ball to the final third, not really looking up, hitting a cross into the box from the wide area and hoping that you'll have numbers there to, to direct it towards goal. Not that crosses are always bad, but get to the end line, work on cutbacks, work on combining and getting into those Man City zones and, and finding clever balls back into the box for late arriving runners from midfield. I mean, that's what Lindsey Rand is so good at. That's what Alex Morgan is so good at. 
finding and exploiting space in the box as those runners in behind the back line. More of those patterns and less just, all right, we're here. We're, mm. We don't really have a plan. We're going to hit the ball into the box and, and hope for the best. I want to see less of that and more really creative and thoughtful possession play, which I do think is possible. And we've seen glimpses of it, but we just haven't seen it consistently. And is there a particular front three that you would like to see in She Believes? We won't have Sophia Smith. She's not in that yeah. roster. Uh, in the last U.S. game when they beat New Zealand 5-0, it was Trinity Rodman. It was Ashley Hatch, and it was uh, Mallory Pugh, now Swanson. Uh, is that the front three you would go with? Do you want to see Alex Morgan starting? Do you want to see Megan Rapino uh, get a start? Maybe Midge Purse? Maybe Lynn Williams? Uh, Joe, how say you? Yeah, so I want to see Alex Morgan as the nine, basically whenever Katarina Macario isn't available. So she's not available in this camp, rehabbing and it appears to be making progress after an ACL injury. But that's that's been a step in the right direction. But I, I don't really expect Ashley Hatch to be on the World Cup roster if Macario is healthy. So yeah. I want to see Alex Morgan as the number nine. I want to see Mallory Swanson on the left. Anytime Mallory Swanson is, is in the team and is ready to go, she is the, the starter in my mind on the left wing. And then on the right side, I'd like to see Trinity Rodman. I think she is still outside of Sophia Smith. I think she is the best and most electric and really most talented attacking option the U.S. has. You can't really go wrong with, or has on the right wing, I should say. You can't go wrong with pretty much any of those options. Megan Rapinoe, I don't think should be starting for the U.S. at this point, but pretty much anybody else I think is right there. But yeah, that, that would be my front three. Morgan up top, uh, you got Swanson on the left and Rodman on the right. I agree with you about Rapino. Would you like to see her as like the impact set piece specialist in certain games? I, I don't see her starting all three uh, of the group stage games or of the she believes games. That is, I think impact sub is probably her role. And, and to be honest, Taylor, she'd be lower on that list for me, even than you know, looking yep. at the forwards in this in this camp and for these games. I'd have Midge Purse and Lynn Williams on the field over Rapino at this point. To me, she almost feels like more of a, a player coach, right? That she's a, a valued voice in the locker room. Clearly, she carries a lot of leadership value for this team and has been you know, key for Vlaco in that way during his tenure. So she's not going to be dropped. I, I'd be shocked if she wasn't at the World Cup. But you watch her play, and, and you mentioned set pieces. I think that's a way she can still contribute. But I just don't see her having the same impact on games and open play as pretty much any, really, of the U.S.'s other wingers that are, are in the national team pool. All right. Uh, let's do one more question, then let's take a break. This one from Spam VR 6 could Kate Margraff just get a promotion to the U.S. Soccer Sporting Director role? Uh, has she shown enough or done enough, good or bad, that would mean she'd be a good or bad sporting director? Also, why isn't she being mentioned for this job more? Isn't that the next step after GM? Hmm. So the the background here, uh, so Ernie Stewart is gone. Brian McBride is gone, both of them stepping down. Uh, Ernie Stewart to take a job with PSV, Brian McBride to go do Brian McBride things. Uh, but Brian <laughs> McBride was the men's GM. Kate Margraff remains the women's GM. And then both of them were sort of under the umbrella of Ernie. Stewart, the U.S. Soccer Sporting Director, I would say that I'm not so sure how essential some of those positions were. Uh, to my memory, Ernie Stewart got the GM job, then they hired Kate Margraff, and then they hired Brian McBride and sort of elevated Ernie Stewart into a different position. I, I think salary might have been a part of that one as to why you had to have different roles there with Ernie Stewart leaving I am of the opinion that you don't really need someone to replace him entirely I think you could have a men's GM you could have a women's GM they could both report to the CEO uh, JT Batson Uh, I think that's something that Paul and Sam have been reporting on that maybe that's what US Soccer will do and have an admin person involved in there somewhere as sort of an intermediary handling a lot of the the licensing and things like that. But but I think m- my perspective is that I think the men's game and the women's game are just different, and there is enough there when it comes to hiring uh, coaches for the U14, U15, U16, all the way up uh, national teams, having a unified program, having a unified style, but also helping out with recruitment, helping out with player uh, sort of uh, back and forth, uh, player liaising. I just think there's there's enough work to be done on both sides that you could have a men's GM, you could have a women's GM, and and that sort of gets the job done. And I do think Kate Margraff has done a good job in her role. Uh, that is my abbreviated answer. Joe, I turn it to you. I wanna I wanna ask you more about sure. that structure that you're talking about, Taylor. But first, I'll I'll go through and quickly answer my perspective for Spam's question. So Kate Margraff, she could be the next sporting director if U.S. soccer sticks with the structure. 
I am not convinced, and I guess this is where you and I disagree a little bit, Taylor. I'm not convinced she's really done enough on the sporting side to warrant that promotion. And I, I don't genuinely, I don't know everything that Kate Margraff does, and I don't know every detail of her job description and how she's gone about that stuff. But yeah. the one thing that I would be pretty surprised if she wasn't involved with doing is hiring Vlatko, which I think folks at this point sort of know <laughs> how I feel about. Margraff was hired in August of 2019. Vlatko was hired in October of 2019. So by extension, Vlatko's failures don't look great to me on Kate Margraff. So I I wouldn't love that necessarily. I, I just don't really have a clear picture of what else she's done. And the one thing I, I do think she's done hasn't been a good thing in my mind. So I, I wouldn't really put her at the top of the list to to be the next sporting director if U.S. soccer sticks with that structure. Taylor, going back to this thing, this thing that you're talking about where there's a, a men's GM and a women's GM, and, and those are basically the top of their respective programs, right? There's no sporting director governing them. There is, they're reporting more to the top of U.S. soccer, CEO, up to the president, all that jazz. And then there's, there's an admin person doing more of the liaising and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's a problem for U.S. soccer not to have one person dictating the sporting side for the program, right? I mean, that's theoretically what Ernie Stewart was doing, right? He was setting for U.S. soccer, for teams that play with the U.S. soccer crest on their, their jerseys. He was supposed to be setting a lot of the stylistic and and almost philosophical, right? How we think about soccer, how we want to play. He was supposed to be establishing those elements for U.S. national teams. I, I don't really know if he was doing that, but in, in theory, that kind of sounds good to me. Maybe the men's game and women's game are different enough that it, it doesn't matter and you don't need that single guiding voice. But do you think that is important or helpful, or, or do you think that should just be scrapped? Um, I think it is helpful in certain countries, I am not sure the United States is one of them. I look at the Netherlands and I look at Spain as my examples here, where I feel like the the women's teams, which I think started later, had less funding than the U.S. women did uh, from the jump. Uh, I think they have modeled themselves more on the men's programs, the men's national teams. And so I think the Dutch, I, I think the Dutch women play a 4-3-3 and aspire to play sort of possessive total football i i think or possession-based <laughs> total football and i think spain like there is a lot of the barca dna on that spanish women's national team i think of how, how technical they are how good they are in possession how good they are on the ball especially when they have all their players and they're not in a giant dispute with the fa but i think those are sort of programs that are trying to catch up and in this case when you look at the u.s you have the women's program that, when it comes to winning silverware, is well ahead of the men, certainly. Uh, but I think because of that, you don't really have a unified style that I think suits both of them. And we, we're even talking about Vlatko right now and the current U.S. women's team, one of our complaints is sort of not quite understanding how the pieces fit together and what the style is meant to be. Right. I think that was a lot of people's frustration with Greg Berhalter is not understanding how the the system was supposed to or was getting the best out of the players. So in that, I think this is the long way of saying, basically, I don't think there's enough of a tradition in place that we know it's going to be when you think of the Dutch, you think 4-3-3, you think total football, you think possession, you think but like good creative attackers out wide and through the middle. I, I just don't think you have that DNA here. And so with that in mind, I think it makes more sense to have an approach for the men's side and an, an approach for the women's side and have it be a unified approach for the women and a unified approach for the men and mm-hmm. have teams play the styles that will get the best out of them long term. And then eventually maybe you bring those together and you can have a sort of unified idea for how all soccer in this country should look. But it's also a country of over 300 million people and it's a pretty big country itself. So I I think to some extent trying to control things too much is probably not the best idea. But having a a men's GM who is overseeing all the men's teams from U14s all the way up and the same thing for the women, I think that does make sense to me in that at least it keeps the national team training and styles of play consistent, but you're not sort of slavishly devoted to one or the other. And I should clarify, I'm saying I think Kate Margraff has done a good enough job to stay in her present position. I don't Ah. really know what that executive sporting director does i'm still sort of unclear on that specific thing it does feel to me like ernie stewart was elevated to a position uh that maybe didn't exist and wouldn't have existed until they hired margraf and then they had to have some like difference there so i'm still a little bit hazy on what those job 
postings are meant to be or what those differences are meant to be. So you and U.S. I, soccer I, both, Taylor. You and U.S. Yeah, soccer so both. So then I hesitate. Time. Exactly. Thank you. So then I hesitate to just say like, yeah, let's throw somebody sure. else in there and have that keep going. I, I wouldn't mind yeah. a change in that structure. Yeah, I, I think a lot of what you said there is, is really interesting, Taylor, about you know the men and the women not necessarily needing to, to always be playing from the same playbook. And, and they really haven't been, I feel like. like I, I don't know that that's been accomplished under Ernie Stewart. You could look and say they both largely play a 4-3-3. They both largely press out of a four three three, but I, I don't know if like Ernie Stewart was telling Vlaco how to play through Kate. I I just don't know if any of that stuff was happening, yeah. and so in that way, you know, maybe it doesn't matter if you have a, a single guiding voice for the federation. Maybe that maybe that was already there and didn't really trickle down to the women's side anyway. It's also true that the women are just so much better at soccer in their context, and the men are better at soccer in their yeah. context, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, they're, they're not... I mean, you can try to get them to do this. It's just not going to happen. Like, it's just... You're, you're going to get something different because the women are, are way better at this game than the men are at their game. So, I, I don't know. I don't really know where I fall on this stuff. It, it could end up being just a financial decision from U.S. soccer if they can figure out the, the most fiscally responsible way to go out and do this to save a little bit of money. And, and spend that money on other things that might be more important. I, I'm not exactly sure where this is going to go, but to, to get to the heart of Spam's question, I don't mm-hmm. think Kate Margraff should get that U.S. Soccer Sporting Director role. And I honestly wouldn't even be opposed to U.S. Soccer trying to find someone to replace her after the Women's World Cup. And, and I don't know what her contract situation is, but it wouldn't be the worst thing in my mind to maybe get some new blood after you've settled all the, the current roles that are already open. All right. Well, while Kate Margraff writes uh, an angry letter to Joe Lowry, we're going to take a quick break and then we will be back with three more questions to round out this episode back soon. Joe, my famed ability to count remains because I said three questions. We've got two questions left. The first of the two comes from Matt Adler. Do you think it hurts the U.S. women's national team that players are distributed across the NWSL versus concentrated on the top three to four elite teams in England, France, Germany, or Spain? I love this question. I think this is a fascinating one. I've never thought about this before. Nor had I. That's in my notes. (laughs) Not not in this context. Maybe I thought about it more... On the men's side, you know, dreaming up like, you know, we have Leeds United States yeah. and so you do have all these players together. We we see how that went. So I'm not yeah. I don't know where the where the value is. Maybe there's more value when those guys come together on the national team side. And in fact, I think that's that's almost certainly true. Uh as far as this goes to the US women's national team, maybe maybe this is a, a bit of a, a pain point for them, but like not a big one, right? I think it's more of a one percent thing or maybe like a zero point one percent thing than it is a 10% thing. So I think it could be an advantage for Germany to have players playing together or for England to have players playing together and have a lot of them in the same clubs or for any team, right? Not even taking those as specific examples, just as, a, as an idea. I think that's probably useful. But for the U.S., the talent is there. And we've seen what they can do without those players all being on the same teams together. So I, I think it, it could be nice and it could be helpful to have those players together more often. In fact, I think it probably would be. But Taylor, I don't think it's like a game-changing thing that separates one team from another. Where do you fall on this? I would agree. I don't think it's a game-changing thing. But it is a question that I hadn't really thought about that much. And my initial thought was like, no, it's not a big deal. Like, it's you want everybody being the main figure for their team. And then I realized, like, but but maybe you don't. Maybe you do want, like like, all of your players sort of... Uh, thrown onto one team or a couple teams because it, it makes them play in positions that, that like they'll be playing for the national team. I think about certain players who would be wide attackers or central midfielders like Crystal Dunn, I think, can play nine different positions, hence the long debate about should she be our left back. Uh, but when you have her at her club where she is one of the best players, you're going to put her in a position where she sees a ton of the ball, is a conduit for possession and for the attack, but also for transitioning to defense. But when it comes to the United States, well, we got to find a way to put her in there, and she's not going to start ahead of this person or this person, so let's put her at left back. I I do wonder if you have a ton more talent on a couple teams, do you have to have some of those conversations at club level, and does that then prepare you better for the national team? I think that is an interesting idea. And then also, 
with uh, like, you know, four players playing or five players playing for uh, Portland, let's say, which is kind of already the case. Uh, sure. But if you had if you had a number of players playing for Portland, there is that familiarity. But there is just also that it raises your game. It, it makes you play at a higher level because you're surrounded by national teamers. You know, you've got to raise your game if you want to stay at that level, if you want to be accepted at that level. So there's probably something to be said for the intensity in training and the intensity of the approach mirroring that of playing for the U.S. women's national yeah. team. So I, I think it's it's an interesting one, but I agree with you. Overall, I don't think it's it's that big of a competitive advantage or disadvantage one way or the other because sure. there's also the idea that familiarity isn't necessarily the best thing. You know, like there's a reason why why siblings tend to get into arguments. It's because they're around each other a lot. And if you have everybody sort of locked on one team together, there's also a uh, greater likelihood of, of discontent and kind of personal feuds. So it works both ways in my mind. Yeah. Uh, but it's a really interesting question and one I hadn't really considered before. The other way I'd go with this is maybe maybe if you think about it in a different way, it's actually a help for the U.S. Women's National Team and, and not because of the atmosphere around the teams or any of that stuff, but I think it, it's it's maybe helpful for the domestic league in the U.S. to have these stars spread out. Right. Yeah. There's a potential, oh, true, I think, to capture true, true, more true. fans. There's a potential to to continue to grow the game in different markets in, in a way that the NWSL, for all of its many, many flaws, which we will discuss maybe in part shortly, uh, I, I think is trying to do, genuinely is trying to do. So I think in some ways it's kind of helpful to have, you know, Mallory Swanson in Chicago. Granted, I think there's there's two other full U.S. women's national teamers in that in that this team is as the well. Thing. But yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's not perfect how it is right now, but it's helpful to have players in different markets to continue to draw interest. Right? I mean, we saw Alex Morgan and Naomi Gurma and Taylor Korniak, like galvanize San Diego with San Diego Wave last year. That, that was a huge story in the NWSL and in American soccer last year. And, and that market was a massive success. And they had a lot of success on the field and fans showed up to games. They set records. It was amazing to watch that as an outsider. And having these national team players in different spots feels kind of useful to me on a grassroots level. And it, it's hard to figure out like exactly how that translates and what percent of value that adds, whatever that looks like. I, I don't think we can tell for sure, but maybe that's another way to look at this, that that clubs yeah. in England or in Germany or wherever, where it is a little bit more lopsided, maybe they don't have that that exactly the same way. I just, I, I agree. I also think looking at this roster for She Believes for a moment, it's worth noting like uh, O.L. Reign have five players, Portland yeah. two, but then if Sophia uh, Smith were there, that becomes three. The Washington Spirit have four, San Diego Wave have three, Gotham has three. So you have plenty of connectivity, and in that way, I think you, you get sort of maybe the best of both worlds there. So I think maybe it helps you, but I, I also have no problem with the way things are structured at present. Joe, anything else on this one? No, not really. You make a good point about things being still somewhat stacked. Uh, it's also helpful for the NWSL <laughs> yeah. because they don't have that many teams, right? So <laughs> it's easier to spread things out across you know, 12 teams than it is to do it across uh, a 20-team league or something like that. But yeah, no, that's, that's a fair point. All right, final question then comes from Kenneth Seiden. Should Jill Ellis be a serious candidate for the U.S. Soccer Sporting Director role? Do you think she would be good for the position? Uh, so first of all, as I've said, I'm not sure we need that role anymore. But if we kept that one or if we wanted to find somebody, if Kate Margraff says, I've had enough, somebody else could have this gig. Uh, do we think it should be Jill Ellis? And Joe, I'll just set you up now. I, yeah. I think it is worth First, noting that there are reasons why Jill Ellis might be well-suited to this position. There is, in my mind, one main reason why she would not be considered for this spot, and I'm guessing you have looked at that as well? I have. So I, I think you're referencing there, Taylor, the the Sally Yates Report findings about Jill Ellis. So I'm, I'm going to read. This is from Just Women Sports, who, who generally do, I think, a really good job of covering the women's game in a way that, that a lot of other outlets just don't. And so this is, this is from them. Go, go check out their stuff. They said, in 2014, U.S. women's national team players reported to then U.S. soccer president Sunil Gulati and then U.S. women's national team coach Jill Ellis that Paul Riley was abusive. So that's back in 2014, surrounding the, the just truly awful stuff about Paul Riley, former NWSL coach who is now banned for life from the NWSL. Uh, and then another quote from JWS, U.S. Women's National Team players, including Kristen Press, reported to Gulati and Jill Ellis in 2014 that Rory Dames, who I believe was also banned for life from the NWSL, former coach, created a hostile environment with the Chicago Red Stars. So those were, I believe, the, the two times that Ellis's name came up in the Sally Yates report 
which is not really a, a document that you wanted to see your name pop up in. I am not, Taylor, and I don't think you are either. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not in a position to speak about what Ellis did or or didn't do in response to players coming to her. Maybe there's stuff we don't know, and, and maybe you know she attempted to take action, but... I mean, it's it's a difficult thing, right? This this might be a reason genuinely to have her stay outside of U.S. soccer. As far as I know, she's still in her president role with, with San Diego yeah. Wave. And so, you know, it seems like that's continued to go fine for her. And, and the team, like I said earlier, had a lot of success. But at a very baseline foundational level, I, I don't know if really she's going to have that opportunity in U.S. soccer because of of really those moments that yeah. have been a part of her past that, that people now know about. Yeah, and I think you have players like Sidney LaRue, Ali Krieger, I think Becky Sauerbrunn even, uh, talking about how if you are if you were complicit, if you knew what was happening and you didn't protect your players, if you didn't stand up for the players, you have no business uh, being affiliated with this national team or any national team. And I think that right there would be a pretty divisive point. Uh, there's also... So there's the Dames uh, connection. There's the Paul Riley connection. Uh, there's the other one with the hiring of Christy Holly. Here's a quote from that Sam Yates report. Uh, While Ellis ultimately made the decision to hire Holly, she did not undertake any due diligence, background checks, or reference checks before hiring Holly. Ellis did not know uh, whether any such checks were performed for Holly or who in the Federation would have been responsible for seeing that they were done. In terms of due diligence, Ellis said they knew what they read in the papers but did not dig into the rumors and quote. And so right there, that would be a hard sell for me of a person who maybe is kind of going through the motions or not necessarily doing all the due diligence you need when it comes to hiring coaches, uh, doing the interview process, making sure that everybody there is reflecting the policy and the program the way you want them to. I think that would be a pretty big red flag. And then having high profile players like Megan Rapinoe sort of openly talk about not liking Jill Ellis, not enjoying sure. her, some of the decisions she made, the atmosphere she fostered in the locker room. I will say consensus seems to be, from what I've read uh, from former players, uh, both with the national team but also with uh, universities, is that she would make a good admin, maybe not a good manager or yeah. first team coach. So maybe there's an argument that she has the organizational ability and sort of vision to do that job well, but I think there's enough baggage there. There are enough sort of connections there that we would like to move away from that would probably preclude her from being considered. Yep, agreed. And, and to add one note, that's probably unnecessary, but it is more on the, the tactical mm-hmm. style philosophy side of things. I don't, I don't think she's the kind of former coach who really wants to establish a playing identity. Like yeah. her, her role with San Diego right now is on the more admin side. It's, it's as president, which my impression is that that's more on the businessy side of, of things and, and doing a lot of that stuff. Maybe there's more, you know, club building and philosophy building in San Diego than I, I think there is. But just judging from her U.S. teams, I, I never got the impression that there was a clear tactical approach there or that that was really like the stuff that she lived and, and, and yep. died for. Yeah. Nor do I, I necessarily think that's like all of what Ernie Stewart was doing, but I think there should be an element of that yeah. in, in any role in U.S. soccer that is dictating some style or philosophy element. So, like I said, that's that's probably an, an unnecessary note after everything else we've talked about, but that was one other thing that came to mind for me. Uh, I, I appreciate that clarification and that note, Joe. I don't want to end on too serious of a note, so I want to ask you something entirely different uh, that I meant to ask you when we were having our Jesse Marsh conversation. Um, I saw a quote before we started recording from Jim Curtin that was about yeah. – uh, like, like basically, he was saying he would take a U.S. soccer assistant gig, right? If and he would give yep. up the Philly job yep. to get U.S. M. T. assistant, yeah. So, with that in mind, would you hate if Jim Curtin became the head coach of the U.S. men's national team and Jesse Marsh took over the Philadelphia Union? <laughs> I love this. I love this world we're living in. Um, okay, maybe this makes me sound stupid, and I'm I'm okay with that. I think I'm more okay with Jim Curtin coaching the U.S. national team than I am with Jesse Marsh. And here's yeah. why. Not because the pedigree is better. Not because uh, you know he's, he's done more in his career. I think Marsh clearly has the better resume, even, even though he's been fired twice in the time that Curtin's still been with the union. I think Jim Curtin is probably more open to exploring different styles of play than Jesse Marsh is. I, I forget this sometimes. Curtin didn't always play this 4-4-2 diamond, high press, Red Bull kind of soccer in Philadelphia. He, he had at times a more possession-oriented approach. And then Ernst Tanner comes in from uh, you know from Europe and, and it's sort of steeped in 
the more aggressive pressing style and curtain shifts and, and starts to play that way and has had a ton of success doing it. So it's not like he doesn't have any ties to that system. But for the U.S., I don't want to see them abandon the possession structure. So if Curtin's willing to be more flexible and to add elements of his his way that's worked well with the union, but maybe to also dig a little bit deeper into his past and align a little bit more with what the U.S. has been trying to do and, and struggling in ways, but don't, doing successfully at times too, maybe that works. So Taylor, I'm, I'm kind of into this idea. Jesse Marsh probably isn't into it, but I know Jim Curtin would be into it. That's for sure. You don't think Jesse Marsh would want to take over Philly? Uh, mm, no, <laughs> not no, quite. I don't. Not I don't quite. Think so. Fine. All right. Well, Joe, uh, thank you very much for joining me to answer all those many questions. We have one more that we'll be answering over on the Patreon. If you'd like to join us over on TSS Plus, we would love to see you there. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you so much for joining me today, my friend. Right back at you, Taylor. This was fun. Listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again very soon. Yeah.